Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za Good morning church. Good to be together again on the Lord's Day. Uh, this morning we are taking a pause from our uh, regular study of First Chronicles. And we're going to start what is effectively our Easter series, but we're going to start it, we're going to do it in a different way this year. We're going to be looking at the book of Leviticus, and we want to understand what does the book of Leviticus teach, and what does it teach us specifically with regards to, uh, to Easter, to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection. So we'll be looking at the book of Leviticus over the next four weeks or so. Uh, leading up to Easter, and it will be uh, my aim to attempt to give you a feel for the book and a, a, a general overview. Uh, I'm not going to go into all the specific details here uh, as much as I can. Uh, please don't ask me a lot of questions. Michael, I told him how I'm going to approach it, and he was asking me 300 questions just this morning. So uh, this is not uh, a, an in-depth, verse-by-verse study that we're going to do, that we're just going to understand all the concepts that are in the book of Leviticus and see them in light specifically of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now for us to understand the book of Leviticus, we need to remember where we are in the story of the Pentateuch, the first five books uh, of the Bible, that is the books of Moses. Leviticus is the third book. Uh, in the series of the Pentateuch, and it, is, it starts off picking up where Exodus left off in chapter, 30, in chapter, 30, in chapter 40 of Exodus. So I'm going to read that last section there from verse 40, um, verse 30, sorry, verse 33 of chapter 40 in Exodus, so that we, we land where the book begins, and then we can get our context. Look at what is said there in verse, starting from verse 33. And he erected the court around the tabernacle on the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. And so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. This is God's word. I, I'm sure in uh, some shape or form, we have all had to live with someone. Right? If you hear... You are probably living with someone or you've had to change people that you live with to live with someone else. 
Uh, living with someone or moving in with someone uh, comes with a number of challenges, and particularly the more different you are from each other. Consider for a moment if you were to move in with your best friend. And this is possibly one of the easier people to move in with because this is somebody that you chose. You chose your best friend, and you're likely the same gender, and you, have, you like the same things, you have commonalities, and you're not going to deal with each other all the time. You're going to be doing your thing, and the, your best friend's going to be doing their thing. So this is like very low stakes. There might be some issues, of course, because you do come from different places. One person lets the sink get full of dishes, while the other says, no, we need to wash the dish every single time when you eat it so that there's no uh, sink full of dishes and, and certain differences like that. Now consider if you had done something illegal and you had to go to prison. Now you have to move in with someone else. You're in, now you're in the company of criminals and you are uncomfortable certainly with your roommate, roommate because you don't know who they are you don't know why they're here, and you, don't, and you did not choose them in any shape or form. It's, very, it's a very uncomfortable, and in prison, when I, at least when I see it in, in, in videos or things, it's usually a bunk bed, so you're sharing a bed with a complete stranger that you're terrified of. And there are all kinds of challenges I, can, I, I think we can imagine with that particular scenario. It is uncomfortable by all accounts. Imagine now, moving in with the great God of the universe. Imagine that. Imagine God saying, I'm going to take up a room in your house. I'm going to come now and live with you. We're going to exist together. That is essentially what is happening at this point of the Pentateuch. That's what we just saw in Exodus 40. Leviticus begins right after Exodus where we've just seen the Lord making his dwelling place among his people. And the question is, how can these people live together? How can God, holy God, righteous God, infinite God, move in and live with fallen, common people? Think about this. If the God of the universe decides to move in with the people, to live with them, what kind of challenges do you imagine there will be? I'm sure you can think of many. For one, God is light, the scripture tells us. He is light, and the people are common. They cannot handle the radiance of his glory. While he might desire to show himself to them, they cannot handle it. They are far below him, and his light is far too pure to be seen and handled by common men. And this is not going to be any regular housemate that you can pass by and say, hey, could you please just, uh, uh, you know, leave the, leave the, turn the oven on for me? Or, this is not going to be a regular housemate. This one, you cannot be in their presence. So how can you live together? How can they have fellowship and live together if his very presence kills them? What kind of living arrangement would this be? Here's, here's, the, here's the situation. Somehow, they need to be changed from being common to being holy in order to come near him. They need to be changed from being common to being set apart, to being holy 
in order to be in his vicinity. Otherwise, the very radiance of his glory, forget seeing it, but the very radiance of his glory would destroy them. A second problem that you can imagine with the fact that would happen when a holy God of the universe moves in with a common people is that he is morally pure and they are morally corrupt. In other words, they are sinners and he is a consuming fire that consumes and destroys sin. He's, it's not something that he, you know, he turns on and off. That's what he is. The scripture says he is a consuming fire. By his very nature, he consumes and destroys and lays sin and those who do it to waste. So then the question is, how can they have fellowship? How can a sinful people who are morally corrupt, always sinning, how can they have fellowship with a consuming fire? In some way, the answer is in some way, this consuming fire that is God must consume something else so that he does not consume them. Otherwise, the entire project of living together, God and man, is going to be short-lived. The book of Leviticus provides a framework of how God dwelt with his people being infinite, holy, and righteous, and they being finite, common, and unrighteous. Leviticus gives us three categories of concepts that communicate the distance between God and his people and provides a shadow of a solution of how they can live together. Leviticus does not provide the solution. It provides a shadow of the solution, and we'll see that in a moment. These are the three concepts. First, it's the ritual sacrifices. Second, it's the priesthood. And thirdly, it is the purity laws. That's the entirety of Leviticus. The ritual sacrifices, the priesthood, and the purity laws. Over the next three weeks before Easter, we will consider each of these three concepts from Leviticus, and we will attempt to see their significance for us. And this morning, we will deal with the first of those, these, the ritual sacrifices in the book of Leviticus. And we want to see what, do, what are the uh, ritual sacrifices, what do they communicate to Israel, and what do they communicate to us? What relevance do they have for us? Uh, the first five chapters of Leviticus give us the five different sacrifices or offerings. This morning, my aim is to take you through them, except the fifth one, the guilt offering. That one we'll look at next week along with the priesthood and to show you its signific- their significance. Here are the five ritual sacrifices. The first one is the burnt offering. The second one, in cha- so chapter one is dealing with the first one, the burnt offering. Chapter two is dealing with the second one, the grain offering, sometimes called the cereal offering, sometimes called the meal offering. The third one is the peace offering in chapter three sometimes called the fellowship offering. Uh, The fourth one is the purification offering, sometimes called the sin offering. And then the fifth one is the guilt offering, which we will look at uh, next week. So today I want to take you through these four, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, and the purification offering. So first, let's consider together the burnt offering. Look at Chapter 1 of Leviticus and verse 1. 
The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. Now, I just want you to pause there for a moment. This is important. In the ancient world, and even in some cultures today, but rarely, but in the ancient world, sacrificing to a deity was as normal as praying to a deity. There is an assumption in the ancient world that if you have a deity, you will sacrifice to him. You will bring him offerings. In the modern world, we believe that God can be challenged, that his word, his precepts, and his actions can be scrutinized by our intellects. There is largely a loss of reverence to the concept of deity, and it could be attributed, at least in the West, to our perception of self-sufficiency. We're not self-sufficient, you see. We're not really self-sufficient, but we believe we are. And so any deity to us is worth scrutinizing. But in the ancient world, while they had their faults, one thing that they hadn't lost is the reality that they are small and God is big. And so it is assumed that they will have to offer sacrifices of some sort. Did you notice in verse 2, he says, when any of you bring sacrifices. He's not saying you guys should bring sacrifices, but he says when any of you bring sacrifices, this is how it's going to be done. It is assumed that they're going to sacrifice to him. Why? Because in the ancient world, there was an understanding that God is big and we owe him. We are in debt to him. Our breath is in debt to him. Our livelihood is in debt to him. Our children come from him. And so we must thank him in some way. And we need to recapture this in the modern world. To live under God is to live indebted to God. To owe him something of myself because of his very greatness and my smallness. The very sin in Romans chapter 1 that Paul deals with that says, he says, they did not honor God as God. That's a very sin that causes all these, others, these other judgments to come on many people around the world is because they do not honor him as God. It's the same for us. We need to honor him as God. Know that he is in, indeed God. I am small. He is big. Now, the, the burnt offering... Here from verse 3 is the offering of the Old Testament. We see it from Genesis all the way through the Old Testament. Its meaning is richer and fuller than all the other offerings. Let's read uh, just a section here from verse 3. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces and the sons of Aaron the priests shall put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. I want you to notice that when someone brings the burnt offering, they bring it, and in verse 3 we're told that they will be accepted before the Lord. 
And notice also in verse 4, we see that when you lay your head on the head of the your hand on the head of the animal, that, that will be the burnt offering, then atonement will be made for the worshiper. The word used there refers specifically to ransom, and in some cases to mean to wipe clean, implying that the worshiper's sins will be wiped away when he lays his head his hand on the head of the animal. I want you to also notice that the animal that must be used, it must be a male without any blemish, except, of course, when he's dealing with the birds in verse 14. So it's a bull or a ram without any defect. The magnitude of this offering must also be considered. Meat was a luxury in these ancient agrarian cultures. If you had a cow, you most likely use it for milk. Okay? We, 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 we eat meat all the time, but for them in these agrarian cultures, not so, because they use them for plowing, and then they use them for milk, and so it was really the measure of your wealth. And not many people had bulls and cows. And so you see what happens in verse 10. If you jump down to verse 10, if his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish. And then you jump to verse 14. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. Suggesting that, understanding that not everybody can afford a bull or a ram, and so the Lord even makes provision that people can bring birds. And I want you to notice this other thing. Burnt offerings were to be made morning and evening, that is, every day at the temple. This was the normal worship service at the temple. Now think about this. You've come here Sunday morning. You're all, you know, looking your Sunday best, expecting to go home, still looking your Sunday best. It's air-conditioned. It's clean. Uh, you know, the, the windows have been dusted. In the ancient world, at this point, when they were doing the, the sacrifices, bringing their burnt offering, it was bloody and ugly and smelly and gruesome. I want you to read, I don't know if you, if you read this again. Look at verse 5. Come back to verse 5. Then, so you're bringing this animal, either a bull or a, or a bird or, a, 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 or a, a ram. Look at what you do. You kill the bull before the Lord. Did you see that? So here you are, you're coming with your cow, and you're going to kill it before the Lord. What else do you do? You kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So they'll take the blood from there, and they, they, they start spraying it on things. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. You, worshiper, you've brought your bull, you've killed it in front of the Lord, now you whip it. Now it's dead, the blood has been taken off, then you whip it, you flay it, you whip it, and once you're done whipping it, what do you do? You cut it into pieces. You yourself. While the, uh, the, sons, of the, the sons of Aaron are there, taking the blood, flaying it, uh, 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 spraying it, and then you are now, what, what do you think your hands look like at this moment? You're bloody, you're smelly. Then you'll cut it into pieces, and then the sons of Aaron shall put, take, put the fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Verse 8, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces that you have cut, and the fat and the wood that is on the fire of the altar, but its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priests shall burn 
all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So here's your bull, expensive bull or expensive ram or this, this pigeon. You kill it yourself, you flay it, you cut it into pieces, and then they put it on the fire and they burn the entire thing. This is your sacrifice of dedication, your whole life, dedication to the Lord. And the purpose of it is to do these two things we saw there in verse 2 and 3. If it's done accurately, you will be accepted before the Lord and your sin will be atoned for. Why such a gruesome procession? Why such a gruesome thing? Gordon Wenham helps us. In the immolation of the animal, God's judgment against human sin is symbolized. And the animal, a real living, breathing animal that someone had raised up, that animal dies in the place of the human. You, when you cut it and you whip it and you're killing it, all of this, when you're doing this with your own hands, you are symbolizing the wrath of God that should be coming, cutting, flaying, and destroying you. And then this living animal is killed on your behalf. All of this is gruesome activity happening daily at the temple, morning and evening, so that this sacrifice can be done, so that I can be accepted, so that I can be atoned for, and when it is burnt up and goes up to the Lord, we're told there in verse 9, it is an aroma that pleases the Lord. I want you to think about this for a moment. Today, everyone assumes that God is obligated to accept everyone no matter how they come. God must ex just accept you however you are and whatever you're doing as you continue doing it. God just must look at you and say, oh, the fact that you are singing to me or the fact that you are praying to me is enough. The, generation, the general expectation today is that I can stop being religious and be spiritual in some vague, undeniable sense, and God is going to accept that. That's enough. As long as I'm just spiritual in some way, you know, I'm in touch with the spiritual side, it's going to be enough. But what we're seeing here, and mark this, what we're seeing here is that to be accepted by God requires death requires something that was alive, a pure thing that was alive, something that would have been very productive, that would have even brought life to others, that must die if I am to be accepted before God. Do you see? You see? And you wonder to yourself, why must something die for me to be accepted? Why can't God just accept me? Sin. Sin. Immorality. Rebellion. Sin. That is the reason. Because of our frequent sin, rebellion must occur. You see, in the Garden of Eden, after God had made man, he required no sacrifice of him. He didn't make any sacrifice. He walked with him. He taught him what to do. He told him what to do. He, he accepted him because he made him. And after he made him, he said, it is very good. But as soon as man rebelled against God, it was no longer very good. And for God to have any kind of relationship, death must occur. That is why he killed an animal for Adam and Eve. 
Sin, while it looks simple, private, and easy, requires death. The cost is the ending of something that was alive. When you fib, when you just tell a small lie, when you succumb to road rage, when you swear at people, when you dress with the purpose to entice and tempt, when you cheat your taxes, when you have no compassion on your spouse, requires death. All of those things require death. Teenagers, when you have an attitude, teenagers, listen to me, when you have an attitude and act like the world revolves around you, that requires death. When you treat your parents like they're nothing, like they're fools, uneducated, they're, they're not up with the times, I'm going to tell them how things should go, that act of rebellion against your parents requires death. Something that was alive and productive must die. And so, not just anything, a pure thing without blemish. That's what it is. You must know that all of this requires a life. God will not just smile at it. He will not forget about it as if it's nothing. Something that had a life must die. And I want you to think about this. Let's bring this a bit even more home. Do you have any pets? If you have any pets that you love, you have your little puppy or your cat or whatever it is, if I told you that for you to be accepted before God, you will have to kill your pet. Now, you love your pet. You've, you know, you feed it. You have medical aid for it in Johannesburg. You know, you, you love your pet. You love your pet. But I'm telling you that you, for you to be accepted before God, you're gonna, it's going to have to die. And not only does it have to die, you are going to have to kill it, beat it up, cut it up into pieces yourself. How would that affect your relationship with sin? How would that affect your relationship with sin? It would at least help you, at the very least, it would at least help you to be constantly aware of the distance between you and God. It should keep you humble. It should help you to walk humbly before the Lord. Imagine standing in the queue. Here's the rest of us, a bunch of us Israelites. We're standing in the queue. We're, we're, the sons of Aaron are busy with the person at the front of the queue. He's just killed his ram and it's all bloody, he's busy flaying it. Now I'm standing, there's like five people ahead of me, and I'm standing here with my pet, with my, this animal that I've raised, or somebody else has raised, it cost me a lot of money. And this animal is looking at me and saying, why must I die? Why are we on this journey towards death there? Why must I die? And then I have to answer, it's because I'm rebellious. It's because I'm full of sin. That's what it is. As I'm looking at my animal, as I put my hand on it, it is because I'm a sinner. I'm, no, I'm not, I'm just like everybody else on this queue as we're all going there with our sacrifice. I'm just like everybody else. I am depraved, fallen, and in need of God's mercy. Today, we treat worship services like a buffet. Oh, I like this. I like that preaching. I like this song. I don't like this. I like this seating arrangement. I don't like this seating arrangement. Instead, we should be coming with humility. As I'm packing in here to worship with all these other people, I'm just as depraved and fallen as they are. I'm, not, I'm no better than anybody else here. That's the attitude that we should be having. If we were to worship like the Israelites, at the very least, it should be create within us a humility. 
But let me also ask you this. The fact that you could either bring a bull or a ram or a bird, what does that communicate? Think about it. We're saying that you're going to be accepted if you bring a bull or a ram or a goat or, uh, or, sorry, or a male sheep or uh, a bird. We're saying you're going to be accepted and your sins are going to be atoned for. Uh, what does that communicate? It communicates at least two things. One, we've already mentioned this, God is not inconsiderate. God understands what we can afford. Some people could not afford a bull or a ram, and so he made, you can, you can, you can do a, a bird. And then certainly in chapter 5, this is ex- stated explicitly. If you cannot afford this, then do this. If you cannot afford this, then do that. But here's the second thing, and don't miss this. This is the, this is the key to understanding the sacrifice. It communicates that the animal's blood did not, in fact, take away sin. If murdering someone required that a bull be killed, then the fact that I can't afford a bull has nothing to do with it. Do you understand? If the penalty for murdering someone was, the, was a bull, then it, the fact that I can't afford it has nothing to do with it. I'm going to have to either kill a bull or die. But God says, depending on what you can afford, bring it. It shows you that the sacrifice itself did not take away specific sins away. It was only doing work in you and I. It was only doing work in the Israelites. And it was setting up a pattern that the New Testament says, here is the Lamb of God who does what? Takes the sin of the world away. That's why God says in Psalm 50, do I eat the blood of God? Do I eat the blood of goats? Sorry, do I eat the meat and flesh of goats and drink the blood of bulls? No. This thing didn't actually do anything. It didn't, it's not like God was hungry and needing this to be burnt up to him, but rather it was so that we can be devoted to God and to show us how our sin will fully be taken away. If you want to understand this more clearer, Go no further than Romans chapter 3, from verse 21. There he tells us that no one's sin can be taken away by anything that is in the law, but rather God was forbearing, waiting until such a time as when the Messiah, the true, the true one, the true holy one, until when he comes, then he actually takes away the sins of God's people. No one, even if, even after killing your animal, your sin was not done away with. The thing that did away with your sin was an event that was going to happen years ahead. The death of Jesus Christ. And so in all of this for us, if we are thinking about it, we have to think about, when we're thinking about the burnt offering with regards to us, we need to think this. I want you to think about this. The burnt offering was done often, every day, morning and evening. Jesus died how many times? Once and for all. The burnt offering required an animal without defect. Jesus was what? Holy, innocent, undefiled. The burnt offering was cut up, beaten, and burnt whole. Isaiah tells us that it was the will of of Yahweh to crush Jesus. It's not me now, it's Yahweh himself with his hands going to Jesus and crushing him slaying him and beating him up and cutting him into pieces so that you can live. Do you see what was done for us in Christ? 
so that we could be accepted in Christ. The body of the Lord was beaten and shed and broken. And the Father himself crushed him instead of us crushing him. Crushed him so that we can live. The issue of being accepted by God is now settled. Trust in the sacrifice God has made because there is no more physical sacrifice to be made for acceptance and atonement. If you resist this, there's no more sacrifice for you, Hebrews says. Nothing can be done for you. Nothing can be done for you. Okay, that's the first one. We have three more. But I won't take as much time on the other three as the first one. The first one is the big one. It's very important. Uh, Second one is the grain offering. Come with me to chapter 2. So the first one is the burnt offering where the animal is burnt up whole. It's entire, the entire animal is burnt to the Lord, and it's a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now chapter 2, the grain offering. When anyone, chapter 2 verse 1, when anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. And he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil, with all his frankincense, and the priest shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is the most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. So here's, some, here's the difference. The difference with this particular offering is that it's not an animal, but it's grain. It's, it's flour coming with frankincense, or in some cases... Uh, verse 4, you'll see, when you bring a grain offering baked in the oven as an offering. So it could be a piece of bread that's been baked. You are told this is how you are to bake the piece of bread. If you're going to come and bring that, you're going to smother it in oil and make it look nice. Fine, fine spices, frankincense, and so forth. In trying to understand the, the, grain, the purpose of the grain offering, the clearest clue is in verse 14. This is what it says in verse 14. And if you bring to the Lord a grain offering of first fruits, you must bring an ear of new grain roasted by fire, coarsely crushed ripe grain as the grain offering of your first fruits. The festival of first fruits was a time of thanksgiving when the people of God brought their best and first of what they had to the Lord. And this is how it's different. It is not, this one is not to be accepted, accepted and to make atonement before the Lord, but rather it is grain and it is to be eaten by the Israelites. Did you see that in verse 4? The rest of it shall be, sorry, verse 3. What is left of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. And Winham helps us to understand that uh, the grain offering symbolizes the dedication of a person's life and work to God. When he brings food to the priest and keeping the priest fed, as it were, he's stating he wants to keep the law of the Lord. He wants to continue serving God. Do you remember when they were to enter the land of the 12 tribes, which tribe was, did not have a physical inheritance? The Levites. And why is that? Because the Lord is going to provide for them because they are going to be priests to the Lord. So how are they going to eat? Where are they going to get bread from? The normal food that people ate, they ate bread and, and flour and all this. Where are they going to get the cakes from that, so they can feed their families? It comes from the grain offering. So think about this. As a community in Israel, 
when we bring our first fruit, when we bring our grain offering, we are providing for the, Le the Levites so that the Levites can continue teaching us and giving us the law of the Lord and continuing the priestly work of serving God. If we do not provide for the Levites, they will die off and have nothing. But if we provide for the Levites, then we will continue to be able to come to the tabernacle and do our burnt offerings and all of our other offerings, and we will continue to serve this one God. Okay? By bringing a meal sacrifice so that the priesthood continues, the worshiper is proving his ultimate allegiance to God and not to other gods. He is saying, I want the priest to live to continue doing this service for us so that we can continue living in the presence of God, so that God doesn't destroy us. The sacrifice directly is against other gods. I will not go to other priests. Like, for example, when we find them later on in 1 Kings with Elijah going to other priests, the priests of Baal. I will not be led into the worship of a foreign god and practice what a foreign god tells me to do. I want to do what God tells me to. It is for this reason that it appears that Paul is picking up on this specific sacrifice when he says this in Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. If I keep the priests alive, I'll continue doing what is acceptable before God. But if I do not keep the priests alive, then I'll stop doing what is acceptable to God. In the same way, my life now must be a living sacrifice. Constantly now, there aren't any priests in that way. Constantly now, going to God's word, knowing this is how I'm supposed to live before the Lord. That's the first connection with us. The, series of the grain sacrifice says to us, uh, your ultimate allegiance and your life and your worship is to the God of the universe. But there's more. Paul also picks up on this particular sacrifice in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul, picking up on this sacrifice, says this. He says, uh, uh, he says, uh, verse 3, uh, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles? Um, verse 6, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in the hope of sharing the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among, among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? And in 1 Timothy chapter 5, it says a very similar thing. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, 
um, he says he says this. Um, uh, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honors, verse 17, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, and he quotes the same text, and the laborer deserves his wages. The understanding here that Paul is picking up from is that because even the workers at the temple were working and receiving from the people, from the people, they were getting their food from that way, in the same way we in the New Testament must ensure that the preaching of God's word continues by feeding those who have, who have that responsibility of preaching God's word. So this is, this is the grain offering. What is its significance to us? One, it says, we, it's Romans 12, renew our minds and constantly be worshiping the Lord. And number two, considering how we are to ensure that the work of the Lord continues. Number three, move on very quickly, the peace offering. Let's move on to the peace offering. Peace offering is detailed in chapter 3, of course, but it's clearest uh, in chapter 7, verse 11, when the instructions are given to the priests as to how they are to deal with it. Now, I want to just show you something here. It's the same. It's a big animal going down the animal's uh, cow, ram, or bird. Uh, but, but here we get more insight in chapter 7 and verse 11. It says, and this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings that one may offer to the Lord. If he offers it for a thanksgiving or a confession, then he shall offer with thanksgiving sacrifice unleavened loaves mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with oil, leaves of fine flour mixed with oil. And with the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving he shall bring, and he, he, he details on what kind of bread he should bring. And then in verse, in verse um, 14, oh, sorry, verse 13, with the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving, he shall bring his offering with loaves and leavened bread. And from it he shall offer one loaf of each offering as a gift to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who throws the blood of the peace offerings. And the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it until morning. But if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow offering or a free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers with his sacrifice. On the next day, what remains of it shall be eaten. So here's what we're learning about the peace offering. I just read that quickly, and I'm going to summarize it for you. There, there, are, there are a number of changes and differences in the peace offering. Number one, the peace offering, unlike the first two, is a voluntary offering, meaning that there weren't set times when you brought it. You brought it just yourself. So there's the burnt offering that is, set, that is set times for, and then there's the grain offering that they are set times for, but the peace offering, you bring it when you feel like it, essentially, when there's something in your life that requires it. And, here, and here's what is seemingly required here in verse 16 that we've just read. There's one, confession or thanksgiving, two, free will, or three, vow. Do you see that in verse, you see that in verse 12, and you see that in verse 16. And this is what those things are. The, the thanksgiving offering. In your ESV, it says thanksgiving, but actually the word is much bigger than just thanksgiving. The word can, is also confession. When you're confessing a sin and now needing help from the Lord, just like we saw David perform a confession peace offering after he counted the people two weeks ago with us in Second Samuel, in, uh, in Chronicles. That's the offering that he made. He made a, a, a confession peace offering. This is when I need deliverance from the Lord, so this is what I am going to bring. So I'm going to 
tell the, 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 the priest, I need deliverance from the Lord, please help me, and, and here's, my, here's my offering. The free will offering is really a spontaneous act of generosity. See examples of that in Exodus 35 and Ezra chapter 1 and verse 4. When someone wants to spontaneously be generous to the priesthood and, to the, and, to, and just wants to well up in his heart with thanksgiving to God, he brings his offering. And thirdly, it is to fulfill a vow. So you remember with Hannah, when Hannah had prayed for a child, this is the sacrifice that she made. It is also a vow offering as we see in the chapter 7 verse 16. That's the first difference. And the second difference with this peace offering is that the, it's the only offering where the worshiper eats a part of it. I don't know if you saw that. It is a food offering. There are th that is why in some translations it's called the fellowship offering. Because there are three parts of it. When you bring an animal, this, you can see this now in chapter 3. When you bring an animal, of the, in, there's, gonna, there's three parts of it. There's going to be the, the meat of the animal. Then there's going to be the fat, two kidneys, and the liver. The fat, two kidneys, and the liver are burnt to the Lord. And then a portion, a third of the portion of the animal that's left is eaten by you with the priests, and the other portion is eaten by the priests. So one part goes to the Lord, one part goes to you, and the other part goes to the priests. This is a fellowship meal. It is a meal of thanksgiving. It is a, it is a meal of, of coming to the Lord. It is a participation meal. I'm participating in the Lord, and I'm going to enjoy uh, the Lord's benefits. What is the purpose of this offering? Well, the simple purpose of the peace offering is that it shows the dynamic realities of life with God. The dynamic realities of life with God. The burnt offering is your whole life being accepted and atoned for before the Lord. The grain offering is your statement of allegiance to the Lord and wanting his, the priesthood to continue, meaning wanting the Lord's word and, and the Lord's ways, rather, to be continued to be obeyed. And this one just shows the personal, dynamic realities of life with God. You see, if we're walking with God, what are we in need of? If God is living with us, if we are with God, what do we need? We need to confess our sins. We need deliverance from Him. We need to be thankful. We are need to consider ways that we can show our thanks and be generous towards the Lord and to His people. So there are certain things where if I'm celebrating, it is good for me to celebrate and give thanks to the Lord and show that celebration by being generous to others. So, so to, to this, if, if really what this sacrifice says to you and me is this. Now listen to me. You might have struggled with all that detail, but now listen to me at least. I'll add this question. The purpose of this, of this offering says this. Is the religion that you're following yours? Is the religion of Jesus Christ that you're following, is it truly yours? Does there come up from you thanksgiving that wells up in generosity? Is it something that's dynamic and real? There must be voluntary confession of sin. Do you voluntarily sometimes go and confess your sin to the Lord? Is it truly yours, this religion? Does the Lord know your voice in confession of sin? 
Were you crying out to him, Lord, please help me overcome this? Is your religion yours? Or is your religion someone else's? You just do what other people are doing. You're just part of the crowd. There's no voluntary anything, nothing that wells up within you. Are you truly born again? Do you truly have this relationship with the Lord? Peter says, cast all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Do you know that reality? Do you walk in that reality that he cares for you, that you can cast your anxieties on him, that you can bring a thanksgiving or a confession or, or just praying, asking him to deliver you? That is what this, this particular sacrifice brings to us. Do you have fellowship, peace with God? Something for you to consider. And finally, as we close, let's consider the purification, the purification offering or what is called the sin offering. Chapter 4. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the Israelites saying, If a person sins by an, by an unintentional wrong from any of Yahweh's commands that should not be violated, and he violates any of them, if the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, then concerning the sin that he has committed, he shall bring a young bull without defect uh, for the Lord as a sin offering. Now I want you to see this in its in its just in its glory. This particular sin offering. There are a number of categories in which we sin. The chief one that 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 the purification or the sin offering is concerned with is when we sin unintentionally. Did you see that? When you do something unintentionally that ought not to be done. Or when the, when the priest does something unintentionally that ought not to be done. Or if you jump to verse 13, you see the same thing. If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, so the congregation sinned unintentionally, then God says this is what must be done. Then God gives a sacrifice. He gives specifications. Do it in this way and sacrifice for that. What does that communicate to us as we come to a close? This offering in many ways summarizes the key problem of God dwelling with humans. People sin so much that not only do they do it on purpose, but they do it unintentionally sometimes. Where it's not that we sin sometimes. We sin so much that sometimes we are even aware, we're not even aware of it. Do you see the problem? And for God, the guilt remains. For God, the guilt remains. People some to think, you know, I didn't mean to, so God can overlook it. Well, no, if you kill someone without meaning to, you've killed them. They're dead. If you've stolen from someone without meaning to, you've stolen someone. There's an injury. There's a trespass, a transgression that's been done. Something must be done to deal with it. We sin so often, so many, in so many different ways, all the time. Guilt remains. Notice how it keeps saying, in fact, if you go through it, it keeps saying that his guilt remains. Guilt is always there until it is dealt with. And so God creates a purification right that when one realizes they've committed something unintentionally that God hates, they could be cleansed. In this sacrifice, the mercy of God screams at us. He provides for all kinds of failing. He is thoughtful of our weakness. He knows that we are but dust and sinners at that. 
So God provides a way for us to be entirely accepted, and then He also provides a purification, a sin offering for when we have sinned unintentionally, communicating to us how much it is that we have transgressed because an animal has to die. But also I want you to think about this. God is merciful. Why is it that He says, you have sinned unintentionally, here's a way to do it. Here's a way to deal with it. It is because he's the one who called us and it is, he's, he is invested in this project of living with us to, be, to succeed. You see, if God is not invested in living with us, then he would just destroy us for the sins that we committed unintentionally. Think about it. You know when like, you're setting a trap for someone? Now, you know what I'm talking about. When you want to get at someone and you're setting a trap for them. Someone, maybe this has happened to you or you did this to somebody. You set a trap for them. You just, I'm just, I know he's going to say this. Watch. And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to jump on him. You know what I'm talking about? Don't act like you don't. <laughs> you know exactly what I'm talking about. Setting a trap for someone. Because you are not invested in this succeeding. You're feeling spiteful. You, wanna, you want them to feel it. And you want to deal with them and destroy them with words or however you can. God doesn't do that. God provides a way for us to be purified, even in the midst of our unintentional sins. Do you see the mercy of God? Do you see what Jesus did for us? He did not only die for the sins that we are not of and when we were willful, he dies for the sins that we are unaware of. He dies for secret sins, willful sins, unintentional sins, all kinds of thoughts, all kinds of heart attitudes. He dies for everything to present us to God. But there's application for you here. If God is like this, so merciful, so aware of weakness, can that be said of you? Is it possible that your standards are so high that you do not make provision for the weakness of people in your relationships? Is everybody just always on ice, just always being nervous around you because you, do, you have no provision for mercy? When, Anjir, you are like, you meet the standard, and if you failed it, I'm done with you. Are you that kind of person? One and done. You see, Christ is not like that. And you need to consider how you can be like Christ. How can you be more merciful? How can you be more like God? In what areas are you so harsh on people that you make no provision for human failing? Those are the sacrifices. If we could summarize, we could say this. This ritual sacrifices in Leviticus are God's loud pictures of what he has to do in order for him to dwell with sinful men. And all of these find their fulfillment in Christ. If you take anything home with you, take this. We have a great sacrifice in Christ. We have the last, the perfect sacrifice. Take this home. Jesus here we see him beaten up, flayed, cut up. All of that so that we could be accepted before God, so that we have something to be thankful for, that we can come to God to confess our sins, that we can plead with God to help us, that we can have fellowship with God and actually have a meal together, have the Lord's Supper together with God. And that we can know that we are entirely cleansed from our sins, whatever magnitude our sin was. Let's pray. Our Lord, we, we praise you and thank you for your kindness and mercy to us.
In these offerings, we see your grace to Israel, and even more amplified, we see your grace to us. You have worked such a great work in us. Help us, Lord, to honor you in it. Help us to live thankful lives, thankful for what you have done on our behalf. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.